Amen. Please be seated. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. It's found on page 33 of your Bible. Make that really easy for you. Uh, Page 33 in our Pew Bible, um, Genesis 33. Alongside our study in Isaiah, we've been studying the lives of the patriarchs, the fathers of our faith, beginning with Adam in Eden and ending with Joseph in Egypt. This was a period especially marked by faith in God's promises when there was little evidence for those promises. Noah, for example, one of those fathers, built an ark for years on dry ground far away from a sea. People thought he was crazy, and it was crazy looking if you think about it. It was only later, as the rains came and kept coming, that it appeared not as madness, but as it truly was, saving faith. The same is true for the ultimate father of faith, Abraham. Remember how at 75 years of age, Abraham left his homeland and family in Syria to live as a wanderer in Palestine. People must have thought he was delusional to believe that he would one day own all these cities and kingdoms through which he passed. He didn't even have any sons at least not until he was 100 years old. But that didn't stop him. That didn't stop him from referring to himself by his new God-given name, Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. He too had saving faith. This was the period of the fathers, but it was also a time of great women of faith. We noted, as Hebrews tells us, that it was by Sarah's faith that Isaac was born, and that it was Rebekah who received from God a vision telling her of her twins and which one would be chosen by God for the future nation. In fact, Rebekah's faith is striking right from the beginning. You'll remember how Abraham's servant comes to Rebekah and asks her to leave everything and become Isaac's wife, sight unseen, to go into a foreign land. And the moment Rebecca is convinced that it is God's will, she obeys. And the next day, she leaves everything behind and becomes for us one of the great Old Testament pictures of Christ's teaching, how he told us that we must follow him and leave all else behind. We too, those of us who are Christians this morning, we Two will appear in our generation as fools to many. As Christians, we will always appear crazy to our unbelieving friends and family. They will never understand us because we too are living on promises. We seem to them like the people of old as they saw Noah building a massive boat in a desert. They will think that we are crazy. They will think that we're crazy right up until the time when the rain begins, as it did in the days of Noah. Right up to the last, right up to the last, they will be rejoicing in evil, ignoring God, and living for the good life. 
Some will be kind, intelligent, and funny. Others will be cruel, derisive, and oppressive. But none of them will understand us any more than anyone understood our fathers in their day. And so it was. And so it was that God came to Rebekah one day and declared to her, her, you're having twins, and the older twin, Esau, will serve the younger twin, Jacob. This was contrary to all precedent, all custom. It didn't make any sense to anyone back then. As the boys grew up together and Esau became mighty, the promise seemed vain and pointless, even ridiculous. Jacob didn't seem like the leader. Esau did. And yet there it was, the promise of God. It can delay, but it cannot fail. So please stand with me now as we read Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Booths or Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, 
Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. This is God's word, that God's word. Let us pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come to you as our fathers did, as pilgrims in a land that we do not belong to and do not own, but yet a land you have promised to us. And we too appear as weak and even crazy to our neighbors and friends, for we look to a city whose foundation and whose maker is God. And so strengthen us now in our pilgrimage. Strengthen us in our faith. Show us good things from your word and build us up that we might walk with you. For we ask, Father, that you would do this for the glory of your son and out of your great love for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the story of two boys, Jacob and Esau. Uh, They were raised in church, if you will, together. Both were circumcised as infants, as an act of faith. Both attended worship services. Both learned the faith from their parents. Both men were extraordinarily blessed in everything they did and everywhere they went. Like the Garden of Eden... Everything these boys touched flourished. Even foreign kings, foreign kings like Abimelech and Pharaoh, picked up on this, the blessing that was with this family, and they were eager to make treaties with them. Eventually, both boys became great nations. But before they became great men and nations, they were brothers, just brothers, twins, actually, Esau was born first, and Jacob was born, grasping at Esau's heel. And as often happens in life, that became a kind of parable of their lives. Esau was always the better man, and Jacob was always trying to take his place. To make matters worse, the parents chose favorites in this contest. Mom loved Jacob. Dad Loved Esau. All of this comes to a crisis, though, as Isaac, their father, becomes old. It was time for the blessing to be given. Jacob had managed years before to snag the birthright from his older brother, but Esau was a self made man and very confident. He was already making it on his own, he didn't need the birthright. But he did, however, want his father's special prophetic blessing. It meant a lot to him. But tricky Jacob, tricky Jacob stole the blessing as well. He dressed up like his brother and managed to trick their father Isaac into blessing him. Isaac thought he was blessing Esau. Now as modern people, we might advise Isaac, having discovered his mistake, to just do a redo of the whole thing. But Isaac knew that could not happen. He knew that God had spoken through him when he had blessed Jacob. He couldn't go back. His wife, Rebekah, had been right. Jacob would be blessed. 
When Esau learned of his brother's treachery, he wept. Isaac managed to put together a a blessing of sorts for Esau, but it was a shadow of the one Jacob received. In light of all this, Esau set himself to kill his brother Jacob. In fear of his life, Jacob fled north to his mother's home, to his mother's family in modern-day Syria. For 20 years in Syria, God disciplined Jacob with a mirror, as we saw. Uncle Laban, his uncle, was a man after Jacob's own heart, a ruthless trickster. But God, in the end, delivered Jacob from Laban. Now, as we come to chapter 33, Jacob is just entering, just on the edge of the promised land once again. He's right at the top of the land. And just as he enters, just as he crosses back into the land of promise, there is his brother with a small army with him. Deeply frightened, Jacob sends presents to his brothers in chapter 32, hoping to heal the rift between them. His eyes are completely fixed on Esau. Esau seems to have the power to kill or to bless. But just at that moment, just as his focus is on his brother, the very night before he meets his brother, the Lord Jesus appears as Jacob's adversary to wrestle with him in the form of an angel. And they wrestle through the night. As if God is saying by this, Jacob, don't fear Esau. Learn to fear me. I alone have the power to kill and I alone the power to bless. In that night wrestling, Jacob came to realize, perhaps for the first time, that it was not Isaac's blessing that he needed. It was not Esau's blessing that he needed. It was God's blessing that mattered. And so he clung to the angel, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then the most amazing thing, the most unexpected thing happened, the most wonderful thing happened. Jacob won. Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. And he was renamed Israel, one who wrestles with God or has prevailed with God and with man. But how can that be? How can a man wrestle with his maker and win? Well, it's because Jacob took hold of faith and faith gets the victory. Faith holds on to God's promises Faith takes of God's own strength. And so with one hand, God was wrestling, yes, with Jacob. But with his right hand, his strong hand, God was establishing Jacob with his promises. And so through faith, through faith in God's promises and through the strength that God provides, Jacob prevailed in the night. And to keep him from being vain and proud, about his victory, much as God would later do with the Apostle Paul, God gave to him a thorn in the side. He dislocated his hip and gave him a limp that he would have for the rest of his life. The next morning, he must still face his brothers, his brother and his brother's men. But now he is a different man. He's finally trusting God, though still fearful. And so here in chapter 33, the two boys finally come together after a 20-year separation, and they find peace with each other. 
their lives after this moment will go in very opposite directions. Uh, For most of your Old Testament, they will be two nations, Israel and Edom, and they will be at odds with one another almost constantly. But before all that can happen, these two are wonderfully reconciled. Our text this morning is really broken down into two large sections in verses 1 through 11. And you'll see that sort of marked in your pew Bible. It's broken out this way. In 1 through 11, see with me the beauty of reconciliation. The beauty of reconciliation when two people are brought together who are at war with each other. And then in verses 12 through 20, see the tragedy of separation. So see with me in 1 through 11, the beauty of And then in 12 through 20, the tragedy. So see first, in verses 1 through 11, the beauty of reconciliation. We have a beautiful picture here of what it looks like for two people to be reconciled. Now let me begin this morning by reminding you of what it means to be reconciled. Because we we get this confused, I think, very easily. Whenever someone sins against you or sins against us as a person, we are free to forgive that person. In some cases, we forgive them instantly, especially if it's not a major sin against us. We, we simply forgive them. We may not even take it up with them. Um, but in other cases, uh, that forgiveness takes some work on our part. It's a struggle to get to the point where we in our hearts uh, forgive them. Forgiving someone is to release them from the debt that they owe to us because of their sin. But to be reconciled with someone is different. To to be restored to full fellowship with each other, there must be more than just forgiveness. There must be a conversation. To put it simply, it only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to reconcile. Forgiveness is a personal act, a commitment not to hold on to something. Reconciliation is a process, something you do together to get back to normal. To be reconciled, Jacob and Esau both have a role, and you can see it in our text this morning. First, Jacob needs to acknowledge his sin against his brother and make restitution. Jacob does this very significantly by bowing to his brother seven times in verse number three. And in chapter 32, the prior chapter, by sending gifts, gifts that in Hebrew are referred to as tribute gifts, gifts that acknowledge that his brother was the elder and the ruler. Throughout the conversation, Jacob is careful to refer to Esau as his Lord, And lastly, notice that Jacob in verse 3 takes the lead. Before before this, he sent his wives and children and servants into the front to meet his brother to see what would happen so he would have time to escape. But that's not really repenting with someone, is it? Repentance is when you take the lead to the person you've hurt and you go first. And so in verse 3, he puts them behind him and he goes first, bowing to the ground to face his brother to face the consequences of his sin. Now, do you see what's happening here? It is truly an amazing moment of change in Jacob's life. He was born trying to usurp his brother. He managed by trickery and fraud to get his hands on the birthright and the blessing. That was his sin. In these acts of homage, 
Jacob is saying to Esau, Esau, I know that you are the older and I submit to God and to you. Jacob is treating Esau as if Esau had the birthright and the blessing. This is so much more than a casual or trite, I'm sorry. It's Jacob repudiating the whole of his way of life up to that point in time. The whole way he had acted, the whole way he had thought about his brother and his family. I don't know where this phrase comes from. I first heard it from Pastor Trefskar. Maybe after the service he can tell us where he got it from or if it's original to him. But it goes this way. It goes, your repentance must go everywhere your sin has gone. Your repentance must go everywhere your sin has gone. Some of us are trying to do light repentance, casual repentance for heavy sins. We desperately want to avoid the pain of a moment like this, a moment like Jacob is having. Seven times, seven times, he bows to his brother. Each time he is reminded of his sin, each time he repudiates his sin before his family, his wives, his children, his warriors, and his brother's warriors. He is a limping and a broken man. But don't you see, this is what repentance looks like, what faith looks like. What a beautiful picture of how we might be reconciled to others. Second, though, also notice Esau's reaction and how he joins in this reconciliation. Although Esau is not a believer, we can learn, we need to learn from Esau's example here too. There's a lot of what we call common grace, common grace here in Esau. That is, it's not saving grace, not a grace leading to Christ, but nevertheless, a common grace given by God to Esau that allows Esau to behave so beautifully here. As Jacob is formal, very formal, and bows seven times, Esau does not stand on ceremony. He doesn't use this as an opportunity to further humiliate his brother. He could have stood there. Maybe you've done this to someone and condemned his brother. Or he could have said, well, it's about time. He could so easily have humiliated Jacob in front of his family and his warriors. But what does he do in verse 4? But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. The language is almost identical to that of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Remember the wayward son returns home and expects to become a lowly servant in his father's house because he had so disgracefully treated his and dishonored his own father. But instead, the father does something a father never did in the Middle East in those days. The father runs to meet him, embraces him, and kisses him. Esau, for all of his faults, is here a wonderful picture of how we should receive those who have sinned against us and are seeking our forgiveness. Now, is this how you treat those who come to you forgiveness, for forgiveness? If not, why not? Isn't this how God has treated you and me? Remember, brothers and sisters, what we do here and now on this earth echoes into eternity. 
If you withhold this kind of forgiveness to the one who has humbled themselves before you, then it may happen to you, as Jesus warned, that you will find your unforgiveness mirrored for you on the throne of judgment. Can you imagine anything more terrible than to appear before God one day and have him imitate your unforgiveness, to have that be the final word of your life? So we need to take a great lesson from Esau. Finally, the section concludes in verse 11 with Esau accepting Jacob's gifts. Esau was gracious enough not to demand them. He says, I don't need them. And he didn't need them. He was already a massively wealthy man. Jacob's gifts were not really important to him materially. But he does take them. He does take them. Jacob needed to make restitution. And their reconciliation needed to be sealed in this way. In taking the gifts, Esau showed in a tangible way that they were indeed reconciled, that they were good with one another. And in giving the gifts, Jacob declared his debt to his brother's mercy. There are so many lessons here. Jacob shows us what real repentance should look like, the godly repentance Paul preaches and teaches in a letter to the Corinthians. Esau, despite being an unbeliever, puts many of us to shame with his loving forgiveness. Behind it all, though, is this wonderful truth. God can reconcile people. As sinful as we are, as hard as relationships are, God can bring healing as we humble ourselves and put love above our differences. And so we see in verses 1 through 11 the beauty of reconciliation. Now see with me, secondly, in verses 12 through 20, the tragedy of separation. As beautiful as 1 through 11 are, as real and I think tender as those moments were, verses 12 through 20 present another great truth to us, a tragedy. In verse 12, Esau urges Jacob to come and live with him. Esau says in, in English, we would say, come, my brother, come, let us walk together. Let us walk together. Remember now, Esau is living in his own land. He's moved out of the promised land and established his own nation called Edom. It was about southeast of where you can imagine Israel right now. That's where Edom was. He settled down. He's married into the great families of the region, married pagan women to secure alliances, and he has become extremely great. He's prospered magnificently. And Esau is basically saying to his brother, why in the world would you go back into the promised land, into Canaan, and live with dad as a pilgrim and a refugee when you can come with me in a new nation that I'm forming that is already more powerful than anything our father or our grandfather ever had? I think Esau is sincere here. He's being kind. He's being reasonable. Unlike Jacob, Esau is always presented to us in Genesis as sincere, even when he's wrong. He knows that he can protect Jacob's family and that the two can work together. He's just met his nephews, Jacob's sons, and he wants to get to know them better. It's a very natural and kind offer, isn't it? Life with Esau would seem to be the easier path. Esau even offers a bodyguard in verse 15 to protect Jacob and his 
family. But Jacob, very gracefully, very respectfully, declines any offers to link himself with Esau. In keeping with his repentance, it was real repentance, he says in verse 15, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. In other words, it's not a rebellious, it's not a self-righteous, I won't go with you. It's a very humble, gracious, I can't go where you're going. The tears and the kisses were real. He is genuinely reconciled to his brother, but he can't walk with Esau or Esau's people. Jacob is not heading south to Edom. He's heading back into the promised land. He has a date with a stone in Bethel. There he saw the temple of God, the angels ascending and descending. There he must return and pay his vow. Do you see the tragedy that is playing out here? The sinful separation between these men has been healed. But now, as never before, the real separation, the deeper separation between them can be clearly seen. For so many years, Jacob's sin had clouded the picture. The twins were at odds all those years, but it always seemed to go back to Jacob's sin, his grasping character. Here, as they are reconciled, those problems are finally dealt with. But at the very same moment, at the very same moment, the real problem, hear, hear this, the eternal problem, the eternal problem, the spiritual problem is unveiled in all its tragedy. They are divided not so much by family feuds, but they are deeply divided by faith. For all their strengths and weaknesses, they are not walking the same path. They are not heading in the same direction at all. They can love each other, but they can't walk arm in arm because they do not serve the same God. This is the great divide. Many of us experience this in our own families. No matter how good the relationship, we find a division that cannot be healed. This is why many of us have friends in Christ who are in the church that are dearer to us than some of our family members. Things in the Bible, much like real life, are often not what they appear. On the surface, after all, who can deny that Esau is blessed? He's a great guy. By human standards, Esau was the better man, straightforward, courageous. He was the son who, if he were alive today, would be the captain of the football team, the homecoming king. His younger brother was quiet, tricky, dishonest, and difficult in many ways. And yet Jacob is God's man. Jacob is a man who has God's promise a growing family, and as of the night before, a physical disability. As he limps towards Esau, he has no way to fight his brother or run from his brother. Esau has all the power. Esau has all the wealth. Esau has the glory. Esau has the kingdom. But Jacob's mother had a vision, and she has told Jacob, her favorite, that Esau would certainly, surely serve him. But what do we see? We see Jacob bowing seven times as he approaches Esau. In every observable way, Esau has eclipsed his younger, troubled brother. But take a second look at Esau as he rides 
with his 400 men. Yes, Esau was by far the greater man. But don't forget how Esau got there. Esau got his wealth, his power, by forsaking, by forsaking his parents' way of life, by intermarrying in the land and devastating his mother and father. He, like Lot before him, settled in the land. Today, to put it in modern terms, we might say that he shrugged off his parents' extremely religious views, their seemingly backward fundamentalism. And it seemed to work for him. He wasn't particularly evil, just normal. He just became a normal guy of his age. Maybe some here can relate. Some of our children, some of our young people might be saying, even this week, I'm just so tired of being different, thinking different. Why can't I be like everyone else? After all, Esau doesn't seem so bad. He's very successful. He's kind. He's generous. He's courageous. But don't ever forget, it is better to limp with Jacob than ride with Esau. Esau's future, whatever you might see in this life, is failure, misery, and eternal punishment. I wonder, and it's just speculation, but I wonder if there was even one desperate moment where Esau thought, maybe I should go with Jacob after all. If he had, he would be in glory right now. The two could have lived together, walked together, but Esau loved the world. What makes someone, what makes someone a follower of God is not their pristine character. It's not that Jacob is a better person. We're not here this morning because we're better in every conceivable way than our unbelieving neighbors, family, and friends. What makes the divide, what separated them, was the grace of God. Rather, the difference we should think about, the difference we should focus on, is God's electing grace. Before they were born, Paul says in Romans 9, God loved Jacob. God set his love on us. God set his love on the least likely twin, the less lovable twin, the tricky twin, not the leader twin, so that all the world would learn and know that salvation is of the Lord so that there would be no room for boasting, that it would be through faith and by grace. So as Jacob limps into the promised land, he goes, verse 17, to Shechem, to a city. God has kept his Bethel promise. He's brought Jacob safely back into the land and with a large family and many flocks. Jacob's route, though, don't miss this. Jacob's route is the same path Abraham had taken many years before the very same places. Jacob is now being presented to us, you see, as a second Abraham, as Abraham reborn. Just as his grandfather did, he has left Syria and entered a land of promise, a land that he believes will be his children's one day, though there is no sign of that today. As Moses writes this book of Genesis, for the Israelites who've escaped Egypt, he knows the spot. He knows the spot where Jacob re-entered the land, for it is the very same spot Israel will enter the land one day under Joshua. Then the promises of God, which seemed to sleep for so long, will suddenly burst forth with all their power. Jacob's faith in God as his God 
is expressed powerfully in the name he assigns to the altar there, God, the God of Israel, which is just to say, this is my God. And that is why they're separated. That's why, though they're reconciled, they are still separated. For God is Israel's God, Jacob's God, but tragically not Esau's. Now step back with me a moment. We have seen in these last couple chapters of Jacob's life um, many, many important things. We've seen how God made peace with Jacob through faith in chapter 32. As Jacob wrestled with God, holding on to God's promises, he was richly blessed. As he does with us, God spans the distance between us and him through faith. Jacob has now seen God, seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and lived. The greatest problem in his life has been addressed through God's appearing. Second, we've seen how Jacob's new faith led to new humility and repentance. Finally, he has the spiritual strength to repent and humble himself with his brother. It was true repentance, a repudiation of a former lifestyle that closed the distance between him and his brother. It was not a trite, I'm sorry, but a public ceremony of bowing seven times, a complete rejection of his former way of relating to his brother. As Jacob and Esau embrace, we see again how God makes peace, not just between himself and us individually, but also heals the divides between us and others as we walk in humility and repentance. Now you see Jacob is ready. He's ready now to enter the land as a true father of faith. It is now at the end of this chapter that he becomes Abraham's true son and heir. The road, as it is often with us, was very difficult and long. Jacob often insisted, as I know I do, on learning the hard way, and God obliged. But the result was never in doubt. God had promised him, and he promises us, he will never leave us or forsake us until he has completed his work. The whole episode, this whole section of Jacob's life ends dramatically in verse 20 with blood with blood. Having just entered the land, Jacob erects a simple altar and offers a lamb on it. As the blood runs, and it ran everywhere, if you've ever seen an offering like this, there there truly is blood everywhere. As the blood runs, Jacob is praying and Jacob is worshiping. As he enters the land, a new man, he is saying in the most dramatic fashion possible. I am a sinner. I have come this far by grace, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. It's been grace all along, hasn't it? It was grace that chose him before he was born. As Paul says in Romans, before either twin had done anything right or wrong, God chose the younger. In doing so, God obliterates all human boasting. The difference between them in the end was all of grace and not because Jacob was more deserving. That same grace then taught Jacob first in the fields of Laban, then in his meeting with Esau. And that same grace made it impossible, absolutely impossible for him to live as his brother was living. Do you see how God here was preaching the gospel to Israel? 
and is preaching the gospel to us. Here is salvation by grace through faith. This is the story of your Bible. Grace reigning through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what you and I will see. That is what you and I will see at the end of our lives. The power of God's grace. So why are we so stubborn against it? Why do we fight God? Why did it have to be all wrestling so much of the time? And yet grace will prevail in us as it did in him. For God cannot lie and he will not quit. And that was what was poured out, you see, on the altar. That is what the blood means. That is what the blood means. It means we, with Jacob, go limping by grace into our promised land. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how gracious you have been with us in our journey in this life. Some right now near the end of it. Some are at the beginning, some in the middle. And yet all along, the story has been the might of your grace and the patience of your love. We rejoice in the way you transformed our father, Jacob. We rejoice in the reconciliation you gave him with his brother. We rejoice in the separation, the holy separation you made between him and his brother. And we rejoice in the hope of the promise that we will enter a promised land with Jacob that he in his heart already was seeking a land and a city whose builder and maker is God, that you have given to him that place and that you will give it to us as well. Help us then now to live as pilgrims by faith and through your grace. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.